many of us will remember back in 1999 when uh, JFK Jr. Uh, was flying to a family member's wedding uh, out in the Northeast, and um, he and his wife and uh, another relative in the plane uh, were lost as they as he crashed his plane uh, into uh, the ocean there. And what investigators have discovered uh, in their uh, examination of all the evidence and so forth is that uh, he apparently suffered from um, disorientation, spatial disorientation, being in an airplane we have the sky above and the ocean below. He got uh, upside down so that he thought the, the, the ocean was the sky and the sky was the ocean. And this led to him flying his plane straight into uh, the ocean, killing all three of them. And what everyone concluded based upon that finding and so forth is that had he had the right training, had he been able to actually his instruments and not just be flying by sight and by appearance, the accident never would have happened. He would have arrived safely at his location so forth. And I mentioned that this morning because um, today we're looking at, uh, we're continuing this whole study of 1 Samuel and we're in 1 Samuel 14, the second part of the anatomy of a fall. Saul's decline from being the person he was supposed to be, the person that's revealed to us back in chapter 11, uh, to being the person we come to uh, remember him by. A person who uh, was totally disconnected from God. Totally um, away from where God would have him be. And we're looking at how he got there in that journey there. And, and one of the ways he got there and one of the ways that we see uh, played out here in, in Samuel 14 is there was a difference between the appearances of things and the reality of things. Just as JFK Jr. had a mistaken understanding about things because he was going by the appearances instead of the realities, so often, we see people go through a decline in their faith, go through a, a, a separation from God, a, a wandering away from God, because their life is built around appearances and not reality. It's built around thinking certain things are what may save you or rescue you or be uh, your salvation instead of the truth of relying on a, a relationship with God. This morning we want to look at that and, and look at perhaps how we might be able to, to better uh, navigate our life. How we might be better to able uh, journey through our circumstances and our situations in a way that honors God, that draws us closer to God, that authentically reveals a relationship with God. And so we look here and Chapter 14, we're going to actually begin with verse 23 of 13 because it actually goes with um, uh, chapter 14. It says, Now a Philistine garrison 
took control of the pass at Michmash. And that same day, Saul's son Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, Come on, let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. However, he did not tell his father. Jumping down to verse 6. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, Come on, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep Yahweh from saving, whether by many or by few. His armor bearer responded, Do what is in your heart. You choose. I'm right here with you, whatever you decide. All right, Jonathan replied. We'll cross over to the men and then let them see us. If they say, Wait until we reach you, then we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, Come on up, then we'll go up because Yahweh has handed them over to us. That will be our sign. They let themselves be seen by the Philistine garrison. And the Philistine said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've been hiding. The men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come on up, and we'll teach you a lesson, they said. Follow me, Jonathan told his armor bearer, for Yahweh has handed them over to Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him. Jonathan cut them down, and his armor bearer followed and finished them off. In that first assault, Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down about 20 men in a half-acre field. Terror spread through the Philistine camp and the open fields to all and open fields to all the troops. Even the garrison and the raiding parties were terrified. The earth shook, and terror spread from God. Looks like it's going pretty well here. This is a this is a great start to a story. This is a great start to a conflict between the Philistines and the Israelites. Just two men, Jonathan and his armor bearer, are taking on a whole garrison, and they are by the hand of God succeeding. They're winning the battle. It's only when we stop and realize what has already happened, what decision Saul has already made, that we realize that this is probably not going to altogether end well. If we remember what happened back in chapter 13, we realize that Jonathan has already been disqualified as the next king of Israel. God's judgment on Saul for his lack of faith, for his halfway obedience, rendered Jonathan and all of his siblings um, simply as other soldiers and not future king as he could have been. He should have been in some ways. We see in that the impact of our sins on those around us, that what you and I do impacts each other. The sins I commit, the, the decisions I make impact this church. The sins you commit impact this body of believers. Paul makes that abundantly clear in Corinthians and elsewhere. That as a body, if one part of us is sick, the whole body is ailing. The whole body is struggling. And so we see at the outset the shame of, of sin and how it can render those who are um, walking right, who are pursuing things in a right manner, it can, can affect their lives and their experience and their direction as well. But as we continue in the narrative, 
as we continue in, in what we see in the interaction between Saul and Jonathan and Saul and his people here, we see that it's even bigger than that. We see Saul's decision-making process come to a, a place, to, to, to a point to where he is broken in his relationship with God. We see many expressions in this chapter of, of a faulty expression, a faulty um, uh, connection between Saul and God, and ultimately Saul and his people. And I, I want us to look at that today in a little bit more detail and again, hopefully learn some things from Saul's poor example about how we might be able to function and relate in a way that's different. And the first truth I think we need to see here is that faulty worship communicates a broken relationship with God. Now, what do I mean by, by faulty worship? What, what am I getting at there? Well, what we come to see in the narrative today is that Saul is um, it, it makes some some very poor decisions, and, and what he essentially does in the narrative is he tries to turn this battle into a holy war. He he tries to convert what Jonathan has done here, what God has done through Jonathan, into something bigger, because in his mind, if I put on the right show, if I if I express the, the right things, the, the things that people might expect of me, then that's going to add legitimacy to who I am. But what we see is that Saul really doesn't understand his relationship with God, doesn't really understand what God expects and what God desires of his people. Let's look at some, some truths about faulty worship here that the narrative reveals to us. The first truth is that it starts with who you listen to. Your worship, your experience of God, your understanding of God begins with what you're willing to listen to, what you're willing to read, what you expose yourself to. We see this in the narrative here in, in verse 3. It's talking about how Saul was staying under the the pomegranate tree and big and so forth. And it says, And Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod, was also there. He was the son of Ahitub, the brother of Ichabod, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, Yahweh's priest at Shiloh. And what does that tell us? It tells us that Saul is accompanied by an illegitimate priest. If you remember... Eli and his sons were punished for their sin back at the beginning of 1 Samuel. They were punished for the fact that they were betraying uh, the, the role that they'd been given. They were making themselves rich and fat off of things that had been dedicated to God. Instead of giving them to him, instead of honoring him, they had been taking them for themselves. And so the writer of Samuel does what here? He, he says this Ahijah, he, he, he talks about how, all the relations he has, and he mentions specifically he's the brother of Ichabod, which means what? The glory has departed. Now who should have been there with Saul? Who should have been beside Saul? Samuel. The prophet. The priest. 
the one who is the epitome of faithfulness and righteousness, the one who has demonstrated over and over again his connection to God, his reliability in telling the truth, his, his commitment to revealing who God is. But Saul has substituted, has replaced him with something far less. He didn't like what Samuel last had to say to him. He didn't like what Samuel had communicated to him about God's desires for relationship, about, about God's desires for commitment. And instead of repenting, instead of turning back to God and listening and heeding Samuel's instructions and Samuel's warning there in chapter 13, he has walked away from Samuel. He has abandoned us. He's abandoned them. And we live in a world today that is very much like Saul. Where if the preacher speaks the word of truth about sin or responsibility or the expectations of God on us and who we're to be, we don't want to hear that. We would rather fill congregations and churches and buildings in places where the preacher makes us feel good about who we are who gives us a positive affirmation that we can practice through the week. And, and I'll admit that there are times when perhaps I get a little bit too negative, if you want to say that. I could be a more positive preacher in a lot of ways. I, I understand that. I appreciate that truth. Because there are some very positive realities about God's Word, and about who He has made us as His people. But I fear that the church, especially the church in America, has gone too far into this positivity mentality. We have mistaken the American dream for the call of Christianity. The American dream is success. The American dream is you can have your best life. Christianity is die to yourself. Christianity is putting others before yourself and living a life of servanthood. But people don't like that message. People don't like that word. And so we begin to, to read and we begin to listen to people who tickle our ears and make us feel good about our selfishness, make us feel good about our materialism, make us feel good about the fact that we ignore the hurting and the lost. And that is the start of faulty worship. Because when you have that mentality, when you have that perspective, when you have that outlook, God is something other than the God of the Bible. He becomes a genie who answers our prayers if we rub the lamp just right. He becomes somebody who's at our beck and call. Who responds to our desires instead of calling us to submission to his desires. And when you have a faulty picture of God, you will have a faulty expression of worship. Second thing we see 
in this narrative is about falsy worship is that halfway worship is not worship at all. Last week we saw that halfway obedience is, is not obedience at all. This is the, the corollary to this. This is the, the positive aspect of it, to, if you will. This is the, the reality that, that if we're only going halfway in our perspective of God, halfway in our relationship, our worship of God, then we're not truly worshiping. We see this in verses 18 and following, where it says, Saul told Ahijah, bring the ark of God, for it was with the Israelites at that time. While Saul spoke to the priest, the panic in the Philistine camp increased in intensity. So Saul said to the priest, stop what you're doing. Saul and all the troops with him assembled and marched to the battle, and there the Philistines were fighting against each other in great confusion. What does Saul do here? He, he begins by calling on the, the priest to speak. He begins by calling on the priest to intervene. In, in connection with, in obedience to Deuteronomy 20, verses 4 through 5, he has brought the priest into the aspect. As, as troubling as the fact that it is that it, it's Ahijah that he's talking to, at least Saul begins with the right steps, with the right expressions with the things God has called him to. But what's it say? It says that once he saw things were going a certain way, he stopped the priest. He said, stop what you're doing. You don't need to take that extra step. You don't need to follow this through. We don't need to complete the worship of God here. I got other things I need to get to. I need to get to the camp. I, I need to get up there to the battle. I'm not going to follow through with God's instructions for what I do before battle. I'm going to go ahead and jump right in. Stop what you're doing. And so he marches up. And we see the consequences of, of this, at least in part, and down in verse 30, where it tells us that uh, the victory would have been far greater had Saul listened to God. They're going to have a victory here. But it would have been far greater, far more significant, had he actually listened to what God had to say. Today, again, I think so often, We only halfway worship. We feel like just being here is enough. Or we feel like just saying the right words every once in a while or, or praying when we need it. That that's an expression of authentic worship. Authentic worship is what? It's our total selves committed to the total God. living out a lifestyle of expressiveness of servanthood, of expressiveness of God's worth and God's place and God's role in our life. It's being here with authenticity that we're here because we love God and we want to praise Him. We want to express His worth to us. listening to the message but not doing it. 
as James warned us against in his epistle. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. That's halfway worship. And that's faulty worship. Faulty worship also leads us to faulty life decisions. It's going to impact the decisions we make out there in our day-to-day life, our day-to-day experience. You see that played out here with Saul. He makes this vow. He utters this command to his men. It's listed for us in verse 24. The man who eats food before evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies, is cursed, so none of the troops tasted food. So what's he doing? He's, he's trying to, again, he's trying to do it, make this into this holy war. We're not going to eat until we're done. Anybody who's worked a day in their life who's been in war or whatever, can tell you, you need to eat if you're going to succeed in that battle, in that struggle. You need something to sustain you. And Saul makes a, a, this foolish, foolish vow here. And in, spite of, in spite of the fact that verse 23 tells us that the victory had already been assured. It's important that the vow that, that Saul calls the people to in verse 24 follows on verse 23 that tells us that God had already given them the victory. It's a foolish vow. I, he doesn't even need to do it. God's already blessed them. God's already given them this success. We learn later in the narrative that while the other men did not eat, it tells us in verses 26 and 27 that, that there was honey on the battlefield. There was these beehives all over the place. There was this honey there that was just oozing, it says, onto the battlefield. It was, it was everywhere evidence. And Jonathan wasn't there to hear his father's vow, and so he saw the honey, and he's like, I'm taking some of that, and he eats it. And the text says, is, the minute that Jonathan ate it, that his eyes brightened. Bing. Sugar rush. Okay. He was energized. He was renewed. He was rejuvenated by the food that, that was already there that God had provided. And Jonathan says in, in verse 29, once he hears of the vow that his father had put them all under, he says what? My father has brought trouble to the land. And that, that, that phrase, that verb, he has brought trouble or made trouble, is the same phrase that's applied to Achan's actions back in Joshua. You remember Achan? He's the one who, after the battle of Jericho, took the loot. He took the wealth. 
And because he did that, because he disobeyed God, he what? He caused Israel to lose their next battle. He what? He brought trouble to the land. It's the same exact phrase applied to him in Joshua 7, 25 and 26 that's applied to Saul here. And as if that's not enough, we learn that as an outcome of Saul's command that his men, his men are, who, are, who have been fighting, who have been exerting all this energy all day, that, that when the battle is finally won, when the victory is won, it says in verse 32 that they rushed to the plunder, took sheep and goats and cattle and calves, slaughtered them on the ground, and ate the meat with the blood still in it. They were so famished. They were so hungry because of this foolish command when there's honey everywhere that what? They break the law of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 17 says, You shall not eat meat with the blood still in it, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and that belongs to God. So Saul's foolish command not only caused his, his men to, to fight lesser than it would have, it, what? it caused them to ultimately sin greatly against God. He wasn't able to make good leadership decisions as a king and as a general. Why? Because he didn't understand the heart of God. Because his worship wasn't authentic. There's a connection in terms of the, the everyday decisions we make to the worship we carry out or don't carry out. I find myself far more susceptible to different types of sin when I haven't been spending time in God's Word in prayer worship, authentic worship. It's harder for me to, to make good decisions in those situations. And I think if you're honest with yourself, you would draw the same conclusion. And our faulty worship is sometimes expressed in, in odd ways. I remember when I was at Southwestern Seminary when I was a professor there. It was my first year on faculty, and I guess since I was first year, they decided to direct all the all the, the strange calls to me. Because people will call seminaries, and they'll have theological questions or theological points they want to make, and so forth. And so they want to talk to a professor, and I guess since I was low man on hold, they were like, let's send him to Pierce. And I remember picking up this, this call, and the lady wanted to know what a wave offering was. So I explained to her how scholars understand it, how we interpret what's going on there, and that sort of thing. She goes, well, I, I really can't do that today, can I? I said, no, you really can't. She goes, but God has told me that I have to fulfill every offering that he has ordered in the Old Testament if I want to be blessed. Like the writer of Hebrews would beg to differ with you. 
on that particular command from God. I, I don't think that's from God. I think that's probably your own desires. And she proceeded to not speak very kindly to, kindly to me after that. But I see people doing this sort of thing all the time. We create this superstitious thing. I have to do this, and I have to do this, and God has told me to do this, and this, and this, and this, and this. There's enough in God's word of what he has actually told us to do. We don't need to be adding other things. But what? We want something magical. We want something that's just ours. We want something that that um, tells us we're special. So we, we, we take those sorts of steps, and that's faulty worship. Because what? We're adding to God's word. instead of being obedient to God's word. And if we look back at Genesis, that's part of the original fall, right? When the serpent asked Eve about eating the fruit, what she say? We can eat of the trees, but of the one in the middle, we cannot eat nor touch it. Where'd that touch it come from? She added it, or Adam added it. One of them, maybe they got together and added it. I don't know. But it was added. And the truth of the matter is, is if you're willing to add to God's word, it becomes easier to subtract from it too because you become the authority. And that sort of faulty worship leads to faulty decisions out there. Why? Because out there, you're the authority too instead of listening to God. Faulty worship is also revealed in ignorance of God's expectations. Saul doesn't even understand the problem. When his men start to eat the meat that sacrifice or that has not been cooked, that 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 still has blood in it. it says in verse 33, someone came to him and, and told him, Saul, this is not good. He's standing in the midst of his men, seeing them do this, and somebody else has to tell him, This is not good, Saul. He didn't even know what was going on and how it was wrong. Faulty worship is also happens when results in the fact that it turns God's victories into our shame. If you look in verse 20 and 21, it says what? It says that the Philistines were killing each other. Why were they killing each other? Because verse 21 tells us that there were Hebrews, there were Israelites who had joined themselves to the Philistines. They had got tired of losing. They had got tired of, of uh, being defeated. And so they're like, well, I'm going to go join the Philistines for a time. So they dressed themselves in Philistine armor, Philistine uh, dress. They had the appearance of Philistines. But when Jonathan started to win, the text tells us that, that those people who were Israelites, they switched. They're like, hey, I'm getting on the right side now. I'm, I'm with you, Jonathan. And they started attacking the Philistines. Well, now you have Israelites dressed as Philistines attacking Philistines. So the Philistines, what? They don't know who to attack. They're being attacked by people dressed like themselves. 
And so what? They just start killing everybody. God had brought confusion into their camp so that they were being defeated. They were killing themselves. This is one of those, as I mentioned before, one of those big brother moments. Why are you hitting yourself? As being the youngest, I got that all the time. My big brother would grab my arm and start hitting me with it. Why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? Showing his power over me. That's what God's doing to the Philistines. Why are y'all hitting yourself? Ha, ha, ha. But it tells us in verse 52, that all the days of Saul, the Philistines remained a powerful enemy. That's how the writer sums up chapter 14. You had your victory. You had your moment because what? God had caused it to happen. God had brought the victory. But because of your disobedience, because of your faulty worship, because of your lack of understanding of who God is, and because of your... Um, desire or willingness to change God's word, these Philistines that you defeated, you didn't ultimately did. You won the battle. Saul lost the war. Philistines remained all the days of his life, it says. Faulty worship leads to defeat. It leads to being someplace other than where God would have us be. And that, by definition, is defeat. And it expresses a broken relationship, a faulty relationship with God. How can you truly worship one who you're not really relating to? Worship is not a set of rules and a liturgy and a set of steps that we take in just the right order. Our worship is an outgrowth of our connection with God. Seeing Him for who He is and honoring and praising Him for who He is. The second truth that this passage reveals to us, it's already kind of been hinted at, is that a faulty relationship with God inevitably leads to faulty relationships with men. Mankind. We see three different types of faulty relationships in, in this narrative. Three different ways that Saul's faulty relationship with God led to a faulty relationship with men. The first is with those that we battle. In verse 24, it says that as the men of Saul were going out, he says, what? The man who eats before evening before, I have taken vengeance on my enemies. It's cursed. What has Saul done here? He has, he has turned the battle into a personal reality. It's very different than Jonathan's expression concerning the same people. Jonathan says what? He says, let us go up against who? 
these uncircumcised. What's he mean by that? These people who are outside of God's covenant. It's a single phrase that, that relates, reveals that what? They're God's enemies. Jonathan is doing what he's doing because he loves God and he wants to honor his relationship. Saul is doing what he's doing because he loves himself. And he wants to see himself praised and lifted up. What does Paul tell us in Ephesians 6? We don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against the rulers of this age. If it bleeds, it's not your enemy. It's a way to summarize Paul's statement there. But what we've seen over and over again of, of believers today, of, of people today, is, is we've turned people whom Christ died for into our enemies. And instead of fighting their ideology, instead of fighting... The, the spiritual forces that are directing them and so forth, we're attacking them. And attacking them, what we're losing our opportunity to share Christ with them, to share the love of Christ with them, to reveal that God wants to save them just as he saved us. We've created battlefields of our own doing in, in this cultural warfare that we're so wrapped up in right now. We've forgotten that the, quote, other side are people that Christ died for too. People that Christ called on us to what? To love. To show compassion to. Because without that compassion, without that love, they'll never see the truth. They will spend eternity in hell. When we truly worship God, we what? We see that what? I'm a debtor. He saved me though I didn't deserve it. And if he can save me in all my sin, how capable is he of saving others in their sin as well? Fully, completely, and totally capable. It also leads to faulty relationships with those we lead. Saul, in this statement, in this moment, he's done what? He has fulfilled Samuel's warning back in chapter 8, verse 11, about how he was going to conscript people. How he was going to misrepresent God. How he's going to lead them away from God. As parents, grandparents, teachers, bosses, we need to be mindful of those that we lead. And we cannot lead them appropriately, correctly, in connection with who God would have us, how God would have us lead us if we're not related to God properly. And then it also leads to 
healthy relationship with those we love. Verses 43 and 44 tell us what? That even though Saul's command was foolish, and even though Saul's relationship was with God was, was faulty, actually because Saul's relationship with God was faulty, that he says, I have to kill John. You hear the foolishness of that? Jonathan's the one who acted in accordance with God's desires that day. Every decision Saul made that day was wrong, including the faulty vow, but because Saul had made that faulty vow, he felt he needed to keep it. And so he basically says, because Jonathan ate the honey, he has to die. This was his own son. I'm going to sacrifice him on the altar of my foolishness. All the men of Israel, all the soldiers said, not today, Saul. It's not happening today. For he has led us to victory through the Lord. But just the fact that Saul's faulty relationship with God had led him so far away that he could not appreciate, he could not relate, he could not respond to his son appropriately tells us something significant. The divorce rate in America is crazy. And I'm sure, and I've shared this before, but just for those of you who may not have been here who have forgotten, you often hear, well, the divorce rate among Christians is just as high. And yeah, if you simply ask the question, are you a Christian? Yes, the divorce rate among Christians is just as high. But what studies have shown is that when you ask the question, are you regularly involved in your house of worship? Are you regularly involved in church, connected to the church, a part of the church, invested in the church? The divorce rate dropped to somewhere between 15 and 20 percent instead of 50 percent. Your relationship to God makes a difference in a relationship with those you love. The last truth that we see here is that a faulty relationship with with God may represent the lack of the presence of a relationship with God at all. In the sum summation of Saul's kingship, in verses 47 through 40, 52, I won't read it. I'll simply say this. It's, it's telling what is omitted rather than what is mentioned. Especially when you compare it with the summation of David's reign in chapter 8 of 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, you have a similar accounting of David's reign there as you have of Saul's reign here, with one big difference. In David's reign, it talks continuously about how Yahweh gave David this, and Yahweh gave David this, that. Here in this passage, Yahweh is not mentioned once in the summation of Saul's reign. It's Saul did this, and Saul did that. And that's all it is. And this is confirmation that outcomes do not always equal God's pleasure. Just because you win 
or are successful doesn't mean God is necessarily pleased with you. The victories for Saul were present. They just weren't what they could have been and did not bear God's blessing. truth of the matter is, if you are truly not walking with God the way you should, if you're, if you're, if in looking at a passage today and looking at false worship today, if you identify more with the faults than with the successes of what worship should truly look like, there may be an indication there that you're not in relationship with God at all. That's something only the Spirit can reveal. That's something only God. I don't stand in judgment of you. I simply ask you to evaluate in prayer to God through the Holy Spirit to ask yourself, am I where God would have me? Am I truly, authentically worshiping Him? Am I walking with Him with a real relationship? Or are these indications of troubles and these indications of, of broken relationships on the human level and bad decisions on a day-to-day basis, and, and those sorts of things are the indications that I'm not really where I should be. I'm really not in relationship with God. And if you come to the conclusion you are in relationship with God and you're still struggling with these things, what do you do? What do you do? You make a commitment as a believer to grow in that relationship, to listen to God more. To walk with him with authenticity and to go where he leads, whatever that may be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. I thank you for the words of hope, joy, but I also, Lord, I thank you for the words of warning. God, I prayed this morning that as we've read this passage, so focused upon your warnings, that you would help us to to listen, to be responsive to what you would have us understand about where we stand with you, God. God, if we if we're standing in on the solid ground, we're standing in, in good relation with you, God. I pray for your assurance and your just a sense of peace and well being on those who are here who are in that position. But God, I also pray for, for all of us, Lord, that if we're, we're in a place we shouldn't be, that you would lay that on our heart as well. That you would discomfort us and make us ill at ease about our standing our position before you so that we understand that you're leading us to change things. Lord, use this time for your glory, for your purposes in Christ's name.